You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. This episode is brought to you by Ancestral Elements Supplements. If you're looking for high-quality whole food supplements, check out AncestralElements.com, navigate to the Supplements tab, and you'll find liver and colostrum, as well as a bear clover tincture that's the only one on the market. I worked with UC Davis to get it lab tested. It's high in quercetin and other phytochemistry that provide antioxidants and anti-inflammatory properties. Sweetened with a hint of maple syrup, lemon peel, and ginger, it's 100% organic and wild-crafted, and all the lab tests are also available upon request. If you're looking to increase your antioxidant activity and fight inflammation, check out the bear clover tincture. Hi, and welcome back. This is episode 41 of the Ancestral Elements podcast. Food science, the evolution of technology, mistakes, blunders, and just plain F-ups. This week, I want to get into not only the history of food science and what it's now become, but where it's gone right, where it's gone wrong, and where it's slid so far off the rails, we can't even see the tracks anymore. Food science gets its start right at the dawn of the Neolithic Revolution, about 10 to 12,000 years ago. As soon as a society and as a culture, we started shifting from hunter-gatherer lifestyles to agricultural lifestyles. We started shifting the landscape, not only in our food, but in our technology, and really in our entire life way, politically, economically, structurally. How we structured our communities shifted when we shifted from hunter-gatherer and part-time agriculturists to full-time agriculturalists. And as this unfolded over the generations and generations, the study of anthropology really took hold. And it took hold to do two things. One, to document hunter-gatherer peoples and their life ways, which is great. But it also took another tone and another path, which was to pacify hunter-gatherers and pacify their life way, to convert them to this agricultural life way. There's a lot of racism in anthropology. Blatant racism, if you really look closely. Actually, you don't even have to look that closely to see it. So what I'm getting at is this was a fight. It was a fight to convert people to an agricultural life way, at least an exclusive one. But what it did is it set up a systematic ability for us then to domesticate more and more foods, for us to crossbreed different species of food we had never seen before. You had potatoes in South America. You had squash and corn here in the United States and throughout Mexico. Things like the domestic chicken comes out of Mexico. That's jungle fowl. So the systematic breakdown of hunter-gatherer societies paved the way for what we now call food science. It paved the way for domestication that turned into food science. And there are still some holdouts from this whole kind of social economic experiment that we've done the past 10 or 12,000 years. There are still people not participating, which is fascinating to me. But here we are in the year 2021, and we have amassed so much technology and so much data that we have the ability to derive synthetic foods and make synthetic genetics to now manipulate our crops, to make them drought resistant, 
to make them higher yielding. But none of that would have been possible if we hadn't systematically broken down the hunter-gatherer lifeway. None of it would have been possible if we didn't take the first few bushels of wild wheat and start domesticating them and growing them. And now in America, we have a wheat that a large portion of the population has an issue with and can't digest well because we've manipulated the protein structure of that wheat. There's more gliadin and more gluten proteins in the wheat than there ever was before. And what that does is it acts as a pesticide, a natural insecticide, but it also disrupts our microbiome and our gut and we get dysbiosis as a result of that. And you see trends like this over and over and over again if you look at the literature and look at the history a little bit. All it takes is spanning out just a little bit to kind of catch the trend and the trajectory that we are currently on and headed for. It's important to note also that manipulating something like wheat, it's not some nefarious plot to, you know, destroy people's health. At least I don't think so. The reason you would do that is because it not only increases yields and acts as a natural insecticide, but there's market forces at play. If you're a wheat farmer, you want the highest protein wheat that you can get because it's going to be turned into flour. Otherwise, it's getting turned into animal feed for chickens and cows, which is a whole other issue in and of itself because those animals shouldn't be eating domesticated wheat crops but they are. So you've got to understand there's economics interwoven in with the food system and with food science in particular. And these market forces have a huge impact on what's farmed, how it's farmed, and how it's genetically crossed or manipulated to increase yields and cope with a changing environment. Now, when doing things like that, it makes it really hard to predict the downstream effects of what that food and what that changing of genetic material or, in this case, a simple couple of proteins will do to a population over the years. And that's why you need to be careful when approaching newer foods, because sometimes the technology ends up being detrimental to our health without us even really realizing it until it's a major problem in the population and a persistent one. And then it's really hard to go in and correct that because people are used to eating those foods. They either grew up eating them or their parents ate them. They become addicted or at least habitualized to the effects of eating that said food. And a lot of times it's because people don't really know. People don't understand the effects of these foods because it might take years and years and years to develop symptoms and to degrade your health from some of these foods. Trans fats are a great example. There's also some more blatant examples, like a, f a fat called olestra. Olestra was developed in the 1960s, actually. And it was developed by two scientists that were wanting to increase premature babies' fat and fatty acids in their feedings. And they ended up stumbling across a manipulated fat that they derived from cottonseed that they attached some different amino acids to it. And what they found was that it didn't get absorbed by the body, but it had the same kind of mouthfeel and gave a nice kind of fatty texture to foods. And it also had an effect of lowering cholesterol. So they worked with this food um, for a long time in laboratories, testing it, tweaking it, until they got to what was trademarked as 
Olestra or Olean. This was put out in 1996 by Procter & Gamble. They put it into snack foods, potato chips, and crackers in particular. If you remember in the in the late 1990s, the Wow brand of Frito-Lay chips, so Ruffles, Doritos, Fritos, any of that kind of family, right? There was a Wow brand and they were fat-free. What that fat was was this Olestra. What it did was two things. The molecules in this fat were too big for your intestines to digest. And so it would just flow through your body without being absorbed at all, which made it fat-free. What it also did was disrupt your microbiome and cause massive diarrhea. And on top of that, strip out nutrients, vitamins, minerals, as it went through your intestines, especially fat-soluble vitamins. They binded to this molecule and you would shit them out with horrific diarrhea, which is exactly the mechanism on why it would lower your cholesterol. It would literally strip fat-soluble substances out of your body. And this was on the market until the 2000s. So again, launched in 1998, national, well, worldwide, and then stayed on the market until 2000. Eventually, Europe and Canada put a ban on this. And it took an additional decade and a half or so for us to stop using it as much in our processed foods. You can still find it sometimes, usually under the brand name Olean, because what they did is it got such a bad PR campaign behind it because of all this diarrhea and gastrointestinal upset that people were really upset. Nutritionists were upset. I think Time Magazine labeled it the world's top 50 worst inventions, and the general population was pretty angry. So what they did was they just rebranded it. As many of these things kind of happen, it just gets a rebrand, especially if it gets banned in a couple of countries and not banned in another, like the United States often. They'll just do a rebrand to kind of refresh their marketing campaign. And then they'll kind of keep quiet about it and they'll just start slipping it into things like snack foods and often really kind of low level snack foods, like off brand snack foods. Weight Watchers, that company was using Olestra based fat in their potato chips and cookies. And since it was a subscription type nutrition plan that Weight Watchers was selling, they were able to just kind of get by with that for quite a while, which is a whole other thing. If you're on a some weird prescription-based nutrition plan, get off of it. <laughs> Weight Watchers is maybe one of the worst things you could possibly do. But that aside, uh, and you saw that up until 2016, where then it finally ended up getting out of foods. So here you knowingly have a food that is causing gastrointestinal upset and diarrhea and stripping fat-soluble vitamins and nutrients out of the body. So not just adding no nutritional value, but it's actually taking nutritional value away from your body. But hey, it does lower your cholesterol, so that must be good, right? And the FDA approved it. And then it took 20 years for them to get rid of it. And this isn't the only example of this, but this is a good example because there was clear physiological disturbances in people, in, in the population. Crystal clear. 
couldn't be any more clear. You know if you have diarrhea or not, and you can trace it back typically to what you've eaten. And there was case after case after case after case of this. And so market forces, advertising, lobbying will always have a hand in the game of nutrition and food science. It's inevitable because they're the ones with the funding and that fund the grants and the research that goes into making these types of food. You know, Procter and Gamble used to be huge in the food business, not quite as big anymore. Nestle's another gigantic corporation that's dumping billions of dollars into grants and research a year to universities so that they can genetically manipulate things like cacao. It can hold up and to changing environments and to climates. So these are extremely profitable companies funding research for food science and for food production. Now, as a consumer, it might sound really good, right? They'll tell you the good stuff. They're not going to tell you the bad stuff. You're going to have to typically find that out for yourself because in the field of nutrition science, they're not running double-blind placebo-controlled trials on the new foods that they're putting out and new ingredients. They will have a taste panel and they will try to gauge whether or not it's up to kind of the sensory or taste experience that people want. And that's how they tweak their things. They're not really after looking at what it's actually going to do when it gets widespread into a population from a health perspective. And that should be concerning. And really where that leaves you as an individual consumer, it should leave you in a place where you're relying less on and less on those types of food. Because you can't possibly know what's been tweaked and manipulated in a laboratory setting and then introduced into the public. You can't predict future decades of ramifications that come about occasionally from that process. Now, it's not always bad. There's great technology in food. Spray drying comes to mind where you can take liquid ingredients and spray them out of very fine nozzles and it dries liquid ingredients at a very, very low temperature, ensuring that the integrity remains. They do that for colostrum products, coffee products, medicinal mushroom products, right? There's some amazing technologies in food science that can really increase the nutritional availability or make it much more convenient for people to consume. It's not all doom and gloom, and I don't mean to make it sound like it is, but more often than not, you should be wary of what's being put out on a commercial level when it comes to foods, and especially ultra-refined and packaged foods. That's where you can get into the most trouble. Again, if you can grow it and cook it, and it's been around for generations and generations, you're going to be okay. Go to foods that are coming from an unmanipulated earth and unmanipulated genetics. Heirloom varieties, heritage varieties, these ancient varieties that haven't really had the need to be manipulated because there's no extreme commercial interest. You should steer away from foods that have a major commercial interest. Could be a good general rule for most people. Because when you're manipulating genetics in foods, whether it's through crossbreeding or genetically modifying foods, you have no way to know what's going to happen generationally when people consume those foods. This is where wild foods become very important. 
because those are foods that are untouched by domestication, untouched by crossbreeding or genetic modification on any level. They're going to be higher in nutrients, higher in medicinal compounds, and your body is going to be able to integrate them and metabolize them way better than any type of genetically altered or even domesticated food. Think about the difference between a banana and a plantain. A plantain is much closer to its original wild phenotype than a banana is. There's no seeds in bananas. If there's no seeds in the food that you're eating, you probably shouldn't be eating that food, at least not day after day and year after year. I'm not saying bananas are going to be detrimental to your health because there's benefits of bananas, obviously. But the farther you get away from the wild type, typically the unhealthier and less nutritious things become. And that has to do with environmental interaction as well as genetics because your environment shapes your genetics. The environment shapes your food's genetics. And then that also shapes your genetics. So if you're eating foods that are highly genetically manipulated to withstand stressors of their environment, you're not going to be getting those medicinal compounds that would be there naturally if it had to contend with elements of the environment, with things like sun and wind and rain. Those elements and those hormetic stressors shape and change the genetics of unmanipulated plants and animals and fungi and every kingdom of life on this planet, including yourself. And if you're eating food that is closed off from natural stressors, it's going to contain less nutrition and less benefit, especially on the medicinal side. And if you're trying to heal or use therapeutics through food, if you're trying to do some type of corrective therapeutic work through food, it's going to make it really hard if you're not eating foods that aren't largely domesticated because you're missing out on a lot of wild elements that can be beneficial to your specific genetic sequence. And I know this can be a little bit hard to grasp, but the question to ask yourself is, what is the food I'm eating eating? And how is it interacting with the elements that I'm interacting with? And if the answer is it's eating synthetic nutrients and it's not in any type of elements, for example, hydroponic lettuce, you're probably not going to benefit that much from eating foods like that. Or if it's so ultra refined and processed down that it barely mimics the food it came from, probably not going to be that great for your health and well-being. And the real problem is that we are so disconnected from our food source. We don't know where it's coming from. If we want some type of green, we go to the grocery store, we pick up a plastic tub of baby kale or baby arugula or baby spinach, and we take it home and we eat it. We don't know where that's grown. We don't know where it came from. We don't know what type of nutrients was used on it. We don't know the genetics they used to even produce it in the first place. And we certainly don't know what it's going to do to our genetics or the genetics four or five, six generations down the line. There's also a principle in food science and botany called the dilution effect. We've done this with a lot of our fruits and vegetables, where we've crossbred them in such a way they've grown massively in size. Strawberries are a great example of this. If you've ever come across wild strawberries, they're tiny. They're like the end of your pinky finger in size. You compare that to a store-bought, conventionally grown strawberry, massive difference. What that does nutritionally 
is that bigger variety, the nutrients get diluted down because that space fills with water, primarily water, and the vitamins and minerals in that fruit get diluted. Where most of those are stored are in the skin, and that skin, since it gets so big, it stretches. Those flavonoids and what give it richness and flavor and palatability and where it can concentrate its vitamins and minerals and phytochemistry get stretched out. All that happens in the skin. And when you eat that, you're eating a diluted down version of the wild type of strawberry that historically has been eaten. And that was done for more yield, for more crop yield. Economic forces and market forces will drive technology and food in a direction that isn't necessarily beneficial to you as an individual consumer. You should know that going in, and you should also know the alternative to that system and to the market forces at play, because there's always alternatives. You can always go get it yourself, grow it yourself, cook it yourself. It takes personal responsibility, though, and that's a tough thing to get across to most people because it's harder. It takes way more work. Acorn mast for me is right around the corner. I'm about a month away from collecting acorns and making flour. I consume way more calories gathering and processing the acorns to make flour than I do, than I get from consuming the flour. It's very labor intensive, but I also get the satisfaction and the knowledge and the skill set to be able to do that on my own without anybody else's inputs. And it aligns me with a lineage of people before me that have done that exact same thing. It gives me the ability and the knowledge and the skill set to be able to pass that on to future generations. This is what food should be about. You should understand where it's coming from, how it's made, what it's doing to your body when you put it in your mouth. That should be where all of your nutrition is centering from. And really, that approach is the oldest, most sustainable economic model that you can live by. People love to tout sustainability of food products. But the reality is, hydroponically grown arugula takes water, it takes synthetic nutrients, it takes synthetic light, and it takes a massive distribution network to create all of those things to finally get it to you at the supermarket in a chilled refrigerated section in, into your house. That's not a sustainable model, ever. It's not even a sustainable production. You know what a sustainable production would be? You growing that arugula on your windowsill, which anybody could do. It's these types of paradigms that we all have to live within. This is the system that we're in. But the more you take a step back and realize where things are coming from and how things have gotten to this point, the more you can start to pick and choose the directions that you personally want to go. And no one can do everything. No one can be perfect, and you don't have to be. But again, understanding the trends of where food science goes and where food production goes is going to become really important as we get more and more technologically advanced, it's going to become more crucial that you stay grounded in reality, grounded in a system that's millions of years old, that has gotten you sitting right here on this planet in this very moment. You wouldn't be alive without your ancestors procuring their own calories and producing children. No one was doing it for them. 
they were eating low-calorie, high-nutrition foods. That model, that sustainable model, has made modern humans. And we've only been doing this experiment for 10 or 12,000 years, and only really highly industrialized at the last 100 years. And we've seen our health precipitously drop, and it's getting worse and worse. We're now producing unhealthier children than we currently are. And we're on a downward trajectory to the bottom. And unless we take personal responsibility in our own lives and educate our own families, it's going to be really hard to move the needle in the opposite direction because there's a lot stacked up against you as an individual consumer. And so knowing some of these basic concepts and principles hopefully will allow you to make a little bit more of a conscious decision and understand why you're even making the decision to begin with. Because if you don't understand what's going on and why you should make the decision to maybe grow some of your own food or harvest some wild foods, it's going to be really hard to get people motivated. And that's not to say you can't place any faith in newer technologies, because you certainly can, but it's not a guarantee, as we've seen. Olestra sounded great on paper, worked really well if you're measuring its ability not to produce fat in your body and to be absorbed. It works fantastic. But there's downstream consequences of that. There could be massive downstream consequences of our genetic modification on crops and influencing crop yields that we have no idea about and that there's no way we can make a good prediction on what it's going to do on a population-wide scale. So by understanding how you got here and understanding your ancestry and history a little bit and realizing that the system that developed you was a sustainable economical model and one rooted in, at the very least, 300,000 years of modern human history, that can be one that you can rely on and at least keep one foot in that system because it's going to be dependable and it's going to be there. And you don't have to wonder if it works because it works, but it does take effort and it does take work. It's not as easy as ordering DoorDash on a Wednesday night when you're tired after working 8, 9, 12 hours. But it really depends on the values and the ones you want to impart not only on yourself but your loved ones. And it depends on what you want to do with your health, what type of responsibility you want to take. Because we now know what ultra-processed, mechanized food production gets us. It gets us very low nutrient-density foods with a very high caloric value to them, which doesn't bode well for people's overall health and well-being. But the addictiveness and the hyperpalatability of those foods drive market forces and drive profit. And it's a very tangled web you have to look through and navigate to understand what's really going on underneath the surface. Because everything's happening below the surface. On the surface, on paper, it looks great. All of it looks good. But if you go just below the surface, you'll start to get a glimmer of what's actually going on. And that's when the cracks start to appear. And there's some amazing people producing foods on both more the traditional side and the technology side. So you can use those people. You don't have to do it all yourself. You're not in this alone. But the more you do it yourself and the more skills you build in growing a tomato plant or growing some lettuce or growing some herbs, the more you're going to be able to pass that down. And you be can become an active participant in your food, in, in your calories, rather than just passively consuming them and not understanding the workload that it actually takes. 
Because the bottom line is we all have to eat and somebody's got to do that work to get products to the market. And in this type of economy with this type of pressure under this system, it's largely unsustainable. And the more local you get, the more personal responsibility you take, whether it's growing your own food or going to neighboring farms and supporting them directly, the work still has to be done because everybody's eating. And the only way to truly ensure that the food you're getting is healthy and done in a sustainable way is to either develop relationships and a community around your local farmers that are doing that or to do it yourself. You know, up until 100 years ago, even 75 years ago, that was still largely the paradigm that we were in. There were some novel things that you could get from across the country or from other countries that were shipped, but largely people were eating very locally or doing it themselves. And that's a trend that's kind of got moved to the back burner for most people, for most Americans, myself included. So reintegrating yourself into that type of process, into that type of mentality, if you really want to take responsibility for your food and ensure that your food is being grown in a way that you want to introduce those nutrients and those elements into your body and into your family's body, doing it yourself is probably the best way to do that. Or build a community that you can rely on and that you know is doing it in a way that you would like to see it be done. And that's where food science really differs because it's all done behind closed doors. You don't know what's going on in the laboratory that's making your supplements or the products that you buy off the shelf. You don't know if the lab tech is tired and hungover and maybe cutting corners. You don't know if they're cleaning the machines properly, which happens all the time. There's cross-contamination in supplements and in products all of the time. How many times have you heard reports of athletes testing positive for performance-enhancing drugs when they're just taking some supplements, right? So these things happen, and it largely is, again, due to scale and to market forces because they're companies, and they're trying to make a profit, and there's nothing wrong with trying to make a profit. But if you're truly concerned about your nutrition and your well-being, steering away from those things for your predominant calorie intake it's probably going to be really important, especially as things get more and more technologically advanced as we move into the future. And they inevitably will. And that's why I'm kind of bringing this up. This is all to say that now's the time to build the skills and to build the mindset and the language around taking a little bit more personal responsibility for the food that you're providing for yourself and to your family. Because anytime you enter into a market, especially surrounding food, everything is going to be overcomplicated. And what I mean by that is there are very complex answers in that system, in the, in the system of food and human nutrition that can be drastically simplified by getting back to a little bit more of our natural ancestral approach surrounding food. We tend to overcomplicate everything when we have simple solutions and answers for it. And really, food comes down to it being very simple. It's planting things in the ground watering and making sure they're getting adequate sunlight or managing already wild populations of food like fruit trees or nut trees or blackberries whatever it is you can tend the wild and that's what humans have been doing since humans have been on this planet what i'm really getting at here is 
we have the answers and the solutions are baked into this whole world, baked into our human experience. They're already there, but yet we take them, we twist them, we throw them in a lab and spit them out in the name of food science. But the science is already there. It's right in front of you. Science is happening everywhere. You don't need a lab to do science, especially not food science. And you're never going to do food science as good as nature can, ever. Whether you're lab growing beef or making plant-based fake beef, never going to happen. It's never going to be as good as millions of years of evolution and honing genetics and honing niched down practices that have created the world that we live in and can thrive in today. You and I can't do that. We never will be able to do that, no matter how advanced the technology gets. Technology that aids in those processes, that can help streamline those natural processes and doesn't interfere with them, that's a completely different story. That's a really beneficial technology, whatever it may be, and there's tons of things. But the moment we try to extract and manipulate and rework the natural process, it becomes very muddy. It's not a clean cut. Let's just rearrange some molecules. And on paper, we know what's going to happen. So it's going to happen in the body. It doesn't work that way. Again, Olestra is a perfect example of that, right? Everything looked great on paper. It lowers cholesterol. There's no fat, you know, throw it into food that were previously super high in fat and cholesterol. Unintended consequences are everywhere in that type of environment, whereas nature naturally works them out for you. And this is something I really struggled with when I was getting my undergrad in food science. I kept wanting to pick up from this millions of years of evolution and wild foods. But what I quickly realized is largely that system has done away with that type of history, has done away with that type of thinking. It's on scalable, data-driven, reductionist techniques, period. Because that's what you can show the public, the company, that it all works. And if something happens downstream, then you do a retweak and you keep it on the market for as long as you can. That's really what food science is at the heart of it. It's industrial mechanization is really all it is. And there are great companies doing great things in that space, but not the majority. And it's never going to be quite as good as the natural thing. Something like spray-dried organs, like liver, kidney, spleen, never going to be as good as fresh. So you're going to take a bit of a hit anytime a food, a natural food, goes into a lab. But at least it's still a natural food. And that's why things like organ supplements and colostrum supplements, things that stay a relatively whole food, but then are just basically dried, that's the type of thing you should be looking for in this system. In the case of Olestra, what they had to end up doing, because it was stripping fat-soluble nutrients out of the body, they had to add synthetic nutrients back into it. And you see that in a lot of different spaces. Milk is a great example of that. But there are a bunch of other things, too. Anytime you're adding synthetic nutrients back in to a reduced-down, altered food product like that, highly processed, it's not going to absorb well into your body. And chances are it's going to eventually cause some disruption. And for me, man, I'm looking for food with a story. I'm looking for food that I can tell people a story about, sitting around a dinner table, eating it. It could be as complicated as harvesting wild game 
such as venison or ducks or whatever it may be. Or it could be something as simple as going and getting blackberries and making a cobbler or a crisp or throwing them on some yogurt or ice cream. But all of it imparts a story and imparts community. And that's something that is just missing in nutrition. It's missing in the science of nutrition. And to me, we've just kind of missed the mark on this a bit. We've got so wrapped up in, you know, calories and these ultra processed foods that we've forgotten what food is and what food actually means. And it's a tragedy because we now have multiple generations of people that don't even know what food is or what food can be. And really, the story gives you a reason to even care in the first place. You're going to start caring about your blackberry patch if you're picking it and rely on those blackberries for a food source or anything else you're harvesting. And that's the Trojan horse of this whole thing, is that once we become a direct participant in food sources, we start caring about them. And we start developing relationships with whatever food sources we're harvesting. And then you can spread that to your human connections and community as well. And hopefully it ripples out, right? And people know this. This has been done for millions of years. But it needs to be continued. We can't get so technologically advanced that we forget these connections. And that we forget our abilities to connect back in to the food that we're building our bodies from. And it's an easy thing to do today. You know, it's easier not to do those things. But as with many things, taking the easy way out isn't always the best option. All right, that's going to do it for this week. Thank you again for listening. As always, eat a well-diverse species diet. Please get outside, and I'll talk to you guys this next week. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave me a rating and review. This will help people find the podcast so we can grow the audience. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to talk to me personally, go to ancestralelements.com slash community to get access to the forum. We go through each episode every week and talk about these concepts and ideas in greater detail. And you can connect with other listeners. 